Welcome to In His Grip with Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. In His Grip is a daily broadcast presented by Mark Inc. Ministries. Today we begin the third sermon from the mini-series, God Will Make a Way. In the aftermath of the death of his 16-year-old son, Mark, Chuck Betters' faith was on the line. For over 25 years, he preached and taught that God is the builder of broken bridges and brings beauty from ashes. But now, in this horrific grief, he questioned if God could do that for him and his family. Dr. Betters does not shy away from asking the hard questions and transparently shares his own faith struggle One of the in this three-part series, me is God Will Make a Way. I have over the years studied Let's the book join of Dr. Job. Betters for the continuation is of our that series. In Job's life, he uh, experienced many different testings from God that none of us would wish on our worst enemies. He lost his health. And he lost his wealth. When he lost his children, all of them, in a sudden disaster, his response was, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I say, Job, you're a bigger man than I could ever be. And as you go through that book, you will find not one word of complaint from Job. Even when his children were taken from him, when his health was taken, when his wealth was taken, when his friends betrayed him, when his wife appeared as though she was going to betray him, not one single word of complaint, which has caused some scholars to think, and this is interesting, that Job never as a person existed, that he is just an ideal that since we cannot identify the age in which the book of Job was written, nor is there any historical data given to us within the book to identify who this person is, and since it's unreasonable to believe or to expect that anyone in their right mind could ever act the way Job acted in light of such suffering, therefore he didn't exist. And I think that's just our way of saying that we just don't have the same kind of faith that Job did. Therefore, it's easier for us to say no such person ever existed. Well, I believe he did exist because I believe that deep down inside of Job there was a real raw spot. There was a nerve which, when hit, would bring a reaction. You know, if you read very carefully the book, you will find one moment in the book where Job complains. And that was the moment when Job sensed that God was silent. When he asked God to explain. When he sensed in his heart that God was no longer listening, no longer interested, no longer there, then Job began to complain. Then he began to ask questions like, Why, Lord? 
What we have been trying to do in this series, God Will Make a Way, is we've been taking a look at some of the significant milestones in the Bible. Touchstones that reveal to us God's faithfulness in performing the impossible. When he brought men to a point or to a situation where there seemed to be no significant way of escape, no way out, where men were faced eyeball to eyeball with the prospects that unless God supernaturally intervened, they would be decimated. In fact, as we study the history of redemption, as we look at the Bible's story, and by the way, the Bible does tell a story. Even though it was written by, by, uh, in 66 books by different authors spanning different ages, the thread of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the thread or the history of the book is one of redemption. It's the story of the progress of God's redemptive program. That is, starting with Genesis, where we define the sin of man, the lostness of man, the creation of the world, and the death that ensued, to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where we see the coming of the new heaven and the new earth in the in the between where you have all of these books written, all of them are pointing to the same thing. God is unfolding His program of redemption, piece by piece, step by step. And I've chosen significant milestones, and I know there are many more. There are many more touchstones that we could reach, that we could touch, that would help us to understand exactly what's going on. Now, we've We've dealt with a few of those, but in every one of those situations, God brings His people to a point where unless He intervenes, they could not escape. In other words, He brings them face to face with impossible situations and forces them to look up. First touchstone that we dealt with was the birth of Isaac. How much more impossible can you get? than a woman who is past her childbearing years. Well up into her 90s, and God is still promising to make of her and her husband a nation. I am going to bless you with a nation. I am going to give you a son. Now you know the story. They took matters into their own hands. Abraham went in and had a sexual relationship with uh, the servant lady, and out of that the whole Arab-Israeli question has yet to be settled. And yet God has promised to give to us salvation through the beginnings of one family. And that He promised in the birth of Isaac to establish a nation. Touchstone number one was the birth of Isaac and the formalization, if you will, of the covenant promise. Touchstone number two was when the law was given when God brought His people to Mount Sinai. And there on Mount Sinai, He would codify His moral requirements, by the way, given to show us that we can't keep them. The law is perfect and holy. Man is sinful and unjust. 
Man is by nature fallen, and when fared against the backdrop of the law, we all stand guilty. But you see, that law could not be given unless God first brought His people, who were 430 years in bondage, out of that bondage, and He brought them to the point where they were pursued by Pharaoh's armies, surrounded by mountain complexes, looking straight ahead was the Red Sea. There was only one direction for them to look, and that was up and God brought them to that point where he split the Red Sea. And as he marches them through and and away from Egypt, and as he marches them through the wilderness on their trek to Mount Sinai, he repeatedly would tell them, you have not passed this way before. This is new for you. You have not gone this way before. I have to show you how to get through this situation. You're not equipped to do this kind of battle. So he marches them on a long journey around certain enemies because had he marched them between two points, that is a straight line, had he marched them directly through, they would have been swallowed up in war. They didn't understand that at the time. They didn't know why God was taking them on the long journey around rather than the straight line through. They didn't know why God brought them to the point of desperation at the Red Sea. They didn't have all the program. They didn't see all the puzzle parts. It all hadn't been brought before them yet. When you trek a journey you've never passed before, remember the Israelites standing by the Red Sea. Remember that for 430 years they accustomed themselves to life in Egypt. And then suddenly God brings them to a point where they had no other direction to look but up. And they did but not without murmuring and complaining and not without the faith of their leader. He said, stand back and watch the glory of God. The splitting of the Red Sea, touchstone number two. Touchstone number three is the rise of the Davidic dynasty, the coming of David into kingship. Remember what we told you about the story of Ruth and Boaz, that seemingly insignificant little book in the Bible called Ruth? The whole purpose of that book is to show you that in the marriage of Ruth, who, by the way, was a Gentile, marrying Boaz, in that whole relationship of Ruth and Boaz, you have the birth of the grandfather of David, and thus the Davidic line is established. Well, why is that so important? Because God is going to bring us to another impossible situation. He is going to tell us that the program of redemption is going to come out of a specific line, the line of David. The king of Jesus, the king Jesus is going to come out of the Davidic dynasty. And so the Davidic dynasty has to be established. Well, now how was that Davidic dynasty established? In an absolutely impossible situation. Here is little David face to face with Goliath face-to-face with the enemy of Israel. And you know that wonderful story that we tell our children in Sunday school is such a powerful, powerful story of the faithfulness of God. It wasn't the slingshot that killed him. It wasn't the stone that he chose. It wasn't the skill of David. It was the direct intervening power of the Holy Spirit who took a little stone and made it into a missile and put it right through the brain of Goliath. You're listening to In His Grip with Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church. We will return to our message in just a few moments. But first, here is a special offer from Mark Inc. Ministries. Are you wrestling with God? Does your pathway seem impossible? 
Sharon Betters shares her own story of wrestling with God in order to reconcile his love and his sovereignty. Learn more about Treasures in Darkness, A Grieving Mother Shares Her Heart by visiting markinc.org. Order now and we will include Loss of a Loved One, a transparent interview with Chuck and Sharon Betters in which they share their own grief journey. Order Treasures in Darkness, the book by Sharon Betters today at markinc.org. And now, let's rejoin Dr. Betters as he continues our message today. You see, because God was going to establish his kingdom and Saul was man's choice. David was God's choice. Saul was an evil king. David was the apple of God's eye. And through that Davidic dynasty, through the coming of David, would one day Messiah be born. And that program of redemption and all the promise that goes with it, all the messianic hope that goes with it, that God would establish His kingdom on earth with David's dynasty forever and forever, that promise of faithfulness was shattered when Israel was brought into exile. The lowest point in Israel's history. And that's the fourth touchstone. The nation divided. Ten tribes in one part of the country. Two tribes in another part of the country. The lowest point in Israel's history. Then and there, God raised up the prophets before, during, and after the exile to warn them of the coming exile, to preach to them repentance in the exile, and to warn them and to learn from the past after the exile, promise after promise after promise. Read the book of Isaiah. What a wonderful book of promise we have there. Written during a time when the nation was about to enter into exile. The lowest point in Israel's history. The glory days of Solomon were gone. Israel was in virtual captivity. Disobeying God. Judgments passed on them. And yet the prophets stood up and spoke of the day of the Lord. The promise that a remnant would be saved. That from the twelve tribes, God would choose a people out of each of those tribes and save a remnant. Why? So that the nation could be kept intact. Why? So that Messiah could come into that nation. He promised the people that He would restore the land, that He would restore the Davidic dynasty, that He would restore the covenant that had virtually been lost, that He would restore the theocracy where He would rule. That he would include the Gentiles and expand the covenant beyond just the Jews, but expand it to all kinds of people from every walk of life. You can read about it in the Kings and the Chronicles. Two different stories, by the way. The Kings written as a commentary on the theological importance of the Davidic promise, draped in moral failure. And in that book you see call after call after call to repentance. And yet against that backdrop, as I told you the last time we were together, a seemingly insignificant verse, the tribes had virtually been wiped out, lost their identity. Yet somehow in the goodness, and I put that in quotes, of the heart of this evil king, you read in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 27 to 30, 
that in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiakim from prison on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him, gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived. Why did he do that? Why is that verse in the Bible? Is that just giving us history? No. It is telling us that even though the whole of Israel had been decimated. Even though the tribes had lost their identity, they were draped in moral failure, God in his sovereignty was going to keep the remnant hope alive and he was going to impress even on the heart of an evil king that he should release Jehoiakim out of prison, and he did. And from Jehoiakim the line is kept open so that the remnant eventually could be saved. What a wonderful, wonderful story of people brought into an impossible situation. If you were a Jew living in the exile and somebody walked up to you with an Old Testament in hand and said, here, right here it says that God is going to build of you a great nation, that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, you would have spit in his face. You'd have said, how dare you taunt me this way? I know we've lost hope. I know we no longer have any rights. We are virtually eliminated as a people. There is none who is faithful. We have the prophets touring the area, but nobody's listening to them. For all intents and purposes as a nation, we are defunct, an impossible situation. And yet way over here in the far corners of the earth, in a little dungeon, there's a little man sitting there who suddenly gets a knock on his door sale. Suddenly the, 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 the cell is opened and somebody walks in and says, you're a free man. In fact, you're not only free, you're going to fare sumptuously with the king. Well, why? Why would he do that? And the only answer you could conceivably give at that particular point, if you were living at that time, was, I don't know. I don't know why he's doing that. But on this side, as we are able to look back, God was preserving through an impossible situation his remnant. Well, now we move to the fifth touchstone. You see, for 400 years, the prophets were silent. In fact, there were no prophets. For 400 years, between the Testaments, the people of God had become acculturated. You say, what do you mean? I mean the distinctiveness of Israel was lost. Now, as a people and as a nation, they existed. But as a distinctive people of God, they no longer existed. They were a fractured community. Over here on one side, you had the Pharisees, who were strict legalists, held tenaciously to the legalism of Old Testament law, and sought to impose not only what the Scriptures said, but many of the things which the Scriptures didn't say on their people. Over here, you had the Sadducees. We would call them the rationalists, or the humanists. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection or angels. They didn't believe in a heaven or a hell. 
They were the materialist of their day. They were the naturalist of their day. Over here you had the zealots who saw that salvation was going to be in political reform and political reform would have to be brought about by terrorism and militarism. And over here you had the Essene community and this community and that community and different factions and groups existed within the nation of Israel so much so that you couldn't tell what a Jew was. You couldn't tell what a Jew believed. So by the time that Jesus comes in the incarnation, by the time the first Christmas unfolds, at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, he is born into a Judaism that is basically non-identifiable. You could not put your finger on what it was. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But you couldn't even identify who his own were. They were so fractured, so divided, so split apart, believing so many different things, that Judaism, in that intertestamental period, as a distinctive, theocratic, Christ-centered, messianic religion, was for all intents and purposes defunct. And yet it is into that backdrop that Messiah comes. A lost identity. You know, I compare that to where we are today. I believe the coming of Christ is very near. I've said before, and I can't prove this certainly, but I can prove that there are certain signs in Scripture that clearly warn us that the day of Christ is near. I believe we are very, very close to the coming of Christ. And one of the reasons I believe that is because of the non-distinctive aspect of Christianity. We are warned in Scripture that prior to the coming of Christ, the church as a church will become a show church institution. That you will no longer be able to identify or to distinguish between the show church and the true church. Christianity as a world religion for all intents and purposes, is no different now than Judaism was when Jesus came the first time. We have our Pharisees today. We have our legalists who sit over here and watch and pass judgment on everybody else. We have our Pharisees who believe that, uh, in fact, you, you can, even within our own denomination, and I say this with love, even within our own denomination, there are some who stand up and say that unless you do this in a worship service, it can't be worship. And they pass judgment on others who hold a different position. That unless it's done this way, or that way, or this way, or that way, it can't be true worship. The Pharisees did that in the first century New Testament time. We pass judgments on people that unless they meet up to our standard, unless they do things the way we think they ought to be done, that it can't be Christian. We have our Pharisees today. We have churches today that have imposed rules on people that are not biblical rules. That you must do this, 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 and this, and you must say this, 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 and this in order to be a Christian. And many of those things have no foundation or basis in Scripture whatsoever. Even the zealots exist today. 
We have the political zealots. We have preachers and teachers who are standing up today and saying that the coming kingdom of Christ has to come politically. And they hold doctrinal positions that, that speak of Christianizing our society and changing the infrastructures of our society so that we may bring the kingdom to earth. Politically, the zealots exist. We have the Sadducees today. They call themselves Christians. If you were to ask them, are you a Christian? They would say, well, most certainly I am. They would say, well, how do you know? Because I'm in the Methodist Church, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm a Lutheran, or I'm a Roman Catholic, or I'm this or I'm that. Well, what do you believe? I believe that we need to love everybody. We need to do good to as many people as we can. We need to, we need to bring justice to unjust situations. We need to feed the hungry. We need to clothe the poor. Uh, we need to remove oppression from the face of the earth. We need to get rid of racism and, and all these other things. And they all sound wonderful and good. But ask those 20th century Sadducees whether or not they believe that Jesus Christ is Creator God. That's all the time we have for today. Be sure to join us next time for the continuation of the series, God Will Make a Way. If you would like to order this sermon in its entirety, call us toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. When calling, ask for reference code 93-83. You can also find this broadcast and the series on our website at markinc.org. Click on the sermon link and look for the series, God Will Make a Way. Thank you for joining us today. If you would like to support Mark Inc. Ministries, visit us online at markinc.org and click on the support link. There are many ways you can help our ministry. You can make a one-time contribution, a reoccurring monthly contribution, or you can support the production of specific Mark Inc. Ministries resources. That website again is markinc.org. Until next time, have a blessed day and remember that God is sovereign and you can trust Him as long as you are in His grip.